0: Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. Today we pick back up in our study through the Gospel of Mark called the Way of Jesus. We trust that you will receive just what you need from the Lord today. Thank you for joining us. It was about 11 years ago now that our family took what seems to have become the obligatory trip to Disney World, right? Like every American family has to do this at some point, I guess. But I remember lots of good memories from that. But one of my favorite memories was on the last night we were there, we st- we were at the Magic Kingdom and we stayed until they did their big fireworks show. And it is quite a show if you've ever seen it, you know, right over the castle and all that stuff. But my favorite part about that memory was looking at the faces of our kids. They were just in complete awe and amazement at what was going on before them. And this morning, we come to an event in Jesus' life that I would just say dwarfs any fireworks show that you have ever seen. In the Bible, it's called the Transfiguration. I got to tell you, when I first started reading the Bible back in high school, when I would come across this story, it was very confusing to me. But the more I've studied it, especially this week, the more I've become amazed at what this story is revealing to us about Jesus. And I think if you're with me today, if you stick with me, this is going to be a little deeper kind of message, so I'm warning you up front, but if you stick with me, I think you'll find yourself amazed as well. Now, if you're just joining us, if you haven't been a part of Cherry Hills, we've been walking through the gospel of mark together off and on throughout the past year and a half or so we're going to continue to do this we're just taking a look at the life of jesus and if you're following on your notes here's the whole idea of this series called the way of jesus in this series we're spending time with jesus learning to live the way of jesus so let me just unpack that a second we want to look at the words that jesus spoke yes we want to look at the works that Jesus did, yes, but mostly we're trying to focus on the way that Jesus lived his life because we view Jesus as a model for how we can live our lives. I love the way Dallas Willard put it. I have this quote up on the screen. He said, we are learning from him how to lead our life as he would lead my life if he were me. That's the big idea of this series. And if you're just joining us, you're coming at a great time because we are literally at the halfway point in Mark's gospel. If you weren't with us for the first eight chapters of Mark, really the big question that Mark has been asking is, who is this man? Who exactly is Jesus? Who is this that even the winds and the sea obey him just with a word? Who is this that he can heal people of physical diseases? He can cast out demons from people. Who is this who has the audacity to forgive people of their sins? This question, who is this? comes up again and again and again in Mark's gospel. And we've been seeing answers of it in sort of little bits and pieces. But in the passage we're looking at today, Jesus will be revealed for who he really is in his full glory. So if you haven't already, I encourage you to grab a Bible. If you brought one with you, awesome. You can find the passage we're looking at in Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 2. If you don't own a Bible or have a Bible, we have some Bibles in the seat underneath you there. Those black Bibles. If you'd like to follow along, I'd love for you to join us in this passage. It's on page 820 of those black Bibles. Please, if you don't own a Bible, take that home with you. We would love for you to have a copy of God's Word. Now, here's what I'd like to do. I'd actually like to read through this whole whole story, and then we're going to unpack it together. So Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 2, begins this way. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. And they have done to him everything they wished, just as it was written about him. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, which is life. And we pray that today, as we open it up, you would reveal yourself to us in your full glory. In Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned, this passage was really confusing to me when I first started reading the Bible. Like, what is the deal with Jesus turning white here? What is the deal with Peter wanting to build some tents for the other three guys? To really understand what's going on here, we need to do a little bit of a history lesson. Yeah! We get to study the Old Testament for a little bit. Are you guys excited about that? In the Old Testament, there are several instances when the glory of God shows up in a manifest way. If you're following on your notes in Hebrew, the word for that is Shekinah or the manifest visible presence of God's glory. The Shekinah glory of God would show up, and it would show up in a radiant cloud. Now, I'm not talking about when you walk outside and you see some of the clouds up in the sky. I'm talking about a brilliant, overwhelming, knock-you-on-your-knees luminous cloud. The glory cloud, it's called. And it was a physical sign of the transcendence and the greatness and the presence of God among the people. The first time the glory cloud shows up is when Moses leads the people of Israel out of slavery from Egypt, right? This cloud shows up, God's presence, his glory, and he begins to lead them towards freedom. This is called the Exodus, where Moses and the Lord are leading the people from slavery. And he leads them with this glory cloud. In the daytime, this cloud looked like a pillar of white smoke. At the nighttime, it looked like this intense fire. We read about it in Exodus thirteen twenty-one. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And by night, in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by night or day. Now, later in the story of Exodus, when the Egyptians realized their mistake, after all, they had just let all of their forced free labor go, they choose to pursue them and bring them back as slaves. But the glory cloud protects them from reaching them, right? Pharaoh is trapped, the Israelites, but he can't get past this glory cloud. We read about that in Exodus 14. The, then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the other side, to one side and light to the other side. So neither went near the other all night long. Pretty cool, right? God is protecting his people with his glory. The Israelites, of course, cross over the Red Sea and God gives Israel victory over Pharaoh and his army, and the cloud continues to lead them to their destination, which is Mount Sinai, which is where they were to receive the law from God. Before they receive the law, though, they're told to get ready. Get ready to meet God, because he's going to show up. The word for this is consecrate. Consecrate yourselves, because the holiness of God is going to appear before you, and they are going to have a chance to worship him. So they get to the base of this mountain, and all of a sudden, this glory cloud appears on top of the mountain. And we're told this is a terrifying experience for the people of Israel. Look at what Exodus 19 says about this. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God And they stood at the foot of the mountain Mount Sinai was covered with smoke Because the Lord descended on it in fire The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace And the whole mountain trembled violently At the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him I don't think we think of God like that much anymore today, do we? This trembling, awesome, holy presence shows up and the people are scared out of their minds. Moses then ascends the mountain. The people weren't allowed to go up there where he receives the law. You know the law, right? Things like the 10 commandments and other things like that. And sadly, he returns back down to the people after just a short time and he discovers that they've already turned their back on God and they are worshiping a golden idol that they had made. And at this point, God is like, I'm removing my glory from them. I no longer want to lead this people. Their sin has caused me to want to give up on them. And Moses prays, he intercedes on their behalf. Lord, if your glory doesn't go before us, we have no chance. And we're told that God listens to Moses' prayer and he agrees to continue to lead the people. And then Moses prays what I would say is the most audacious, bold prayer in the entire Bible. He prays to God, show me your glory. Moses, you don't know what you're asking. But somehow God agrees. And he says, listen, Moses, you can't see my full glory. You can only see my partial glory. Because if you're following on your notes, no human could see the full glory of God and live. God is too holy for us to stand in his presence as sinners. But God agrees, I'll show you a part of my glory. And we read this incredible scene in Exodus 33, describes this. Then the Lord said, this is, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back. But my face must not be seen. In awe and worship after this, Moses just sits there in worship for 40 days. He doesn't eat, he doesn't drink, and then he rewrites the law on two more tablets. And included in the law, God gave Moses some plans to build what is called the tabernacle. It's a tent where God says, okay, this is where my presence, my glory is now going to dwell. And whenever I have you guys move, my glory will rise up from the tabernacle and I will show you where I want you to go. Moses comes down the mountain and one of the craziest things happens is his face is glowing. So bright that the people beg him to put a veil on his face. He has been in God's glory, in his presence, right? They don't want to see him. It reminds me of on a day after it snowed, you go out in the morning and it's sunny, right? And you're just like, whoa, like I can't even see. I need my sunglasses on. Like that's how bright Moses' face is. And the people are like, please put a veil on. Well, the people build the tabernacle. In an incredible moment, God's Shekinah glory covers the tabernacle as a symbol that his presence will now be will dwell with his people. And it's described this way in Exodus 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses, this is amazing, could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And like I said, whenever it was time for the Israelites to move, the glory cloud would lift up from the tabernacle. The Israelites would set out, eventually leading them to the promised land. Are you still with me? I promise this all has a point. Then one day, Solomon, David's son, says, we need to, David actually says, we need to build a permanent house for the Lord. And so they make plans to build a temple. And Solomon completes the temple. And in this moment when the temple is dedicated, 2 Corinthians 7 Corinthians 2 Chronicles 7 tells us what happens. Check this out. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground. What else can you do? And they worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, he is good, his hesed, his love endures forever. This was a great time in Israel's history. Unprecedented wealth, unprecedented prosperity. But if you've read the Old Testament before, you know that it doesn't last very long, right? You know that again and again, the people of Israel turn their back on the Lord and they go and worship other gods. And eventually what happens is described in this Maybe the saddest scene in the Old Testament where God's glory literally leaves the temple, leaves the people of Israel. You can read about this starting in Ezekiel chapter 8, but I'll just kind of wrap it up with the conclusion in chapter 10 verses 18 and 19 where Ezekiel sees this vision. The glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. While I watched the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground as they went. The wheels went with them. They stopped at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of God of Israel was above them. It's this picture of the Lord's glory moving out from the area of the temple. And if you're following on your notes, for 600 years, though the temple was destroyed and rebuilt again, though godly men and women came and went, God's glory was not seen In Israel. Can you imagine 600 years without God's glory? Until one day in Mark chapter 9, in this incredible story, it reappears. Would you read verses 3 and 7 of Mark 9 on your notes with me there? It says, His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. What's happening here? It's the Shekinah glory of God returned. Think of it. This is the pillar that led the people of Israel out of Egypt. This is the cloud that passed by Moses when he was in the cleft of the rock. This is the cloud that filled the tabernacle with God's glory that even Moses couldn't enter into it. This is the glory that appeared when the temple was being dedicated. So glorious that the priests were not able to enter into its presence. It's the same glory that left the temple in Ezekiel's vision. The glory of God has returned after 600 years. And if you're following on your notes, what we discover is Jesus is the very Shekinah glory of God in the flesh. Everything from the Old Testament about God's glory is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the pillar. Jesus is the cloud. Jesus is the very glory of God returned. In this moment, this small moment where only three people get to experience it, three of Jesus' closest friends, the veil is lifted from Jesus' humanity for a moment. He lets people take the sunglasses off for just a second, three of them, and they get to see the glory of God in its full manifest presence in the person of Jesus. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai in Exodus 33, you remember I told you his face shone so bright, they asked him to put a veil on. But here's what's different. Moses' face was reflected light. Think of it like the moon to the sun, right? When the moon, we see the moon because it's reflected light from the sun. The disciples here get to see the sun. They're looking straight into the glory of God, something that nobody had ever gotten to do before. And what's amazing here is that the glory doesn't come down. We see the cloud come down, but where does the light come from? From him himself. He turns this dazzling bleach white. Something bleach couldn't even make white, like so white that it could only be God's glory this is why it says in hebrews 1 3 this amazing place in the new testament that describes jesus these words i have printed on your notes there could you read them with me the sun is the radiance of god's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word so friends we've been asking this question who is this who is this man who is jesus well he's no mere man He is the very glory of God who has come to dwell among us, to pitch his tent among us, God with us, Emmanuel. So that's this story and what it's about. And if this story is true... If you believe this story is true, if this really happened, I would say to us this morning, there are two huge implications for us. Let me talk about that. The first implication is if Jesus Christ really is the full manifest glory of God, the perfect, exact representation, the presence of God here on earth, it means if you're following, Jesus is more than a prophet or teacher. He is God. This is emphasized in this text. I love this, Peter's question, right? Master, let us put up three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Did you know that word can also mean tabernacle? Let's put up three tabernacles so we can contain you guys here. Let's keep this good thing going, Jesus, right? Let's get that. We got the hall of faith here, right? We got Moses, the law. We got the greatest prophet of all time, Elijah. And we have Messiah. We just learned in Mark 8, like he's Messiah, Let me build some tents for you guys so we can keep you here and contain you. But immediately what we read is when the cloud of the Father comes down and he speaks those words, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. When the disciples open their eyes, who is left? Jesus is there alone, standing there alone before their eyes. Here's what it's telling us. Jesus stands alone. There is no one like him. He's not just a prophet like Elijah, a teacher like Moses. He's not going to fit into a tabernacle or a tent. He is not just the Messiah, though he is that. He is everything. The reason Moses and Elijah are there is because Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. Or to put it more simply, they represent the Old Testament. They represent the Old Covenant, right? And what we learn in this story, if you're following, is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the law and prophets. Everything in history has been pointing to him. Jesus says this himself in Matthew 5:17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but what, friends? To fulfill them. The fulfillment of Is here. God's promise has come in the flesh. Jesus is the focus of the Old Testament. Jesus is the focus of human history. Jesus is the focus of eternity. Jesus is God in the flesh, come down to us in person. Now, maybe this is like duh to you, but this has been debated for centuries. How could Jesus be fully human and fully God? I'm teaching my history class right now and they're probably getting tired of hearing about all of the debate that went on about this. And if you don't know this, many religions simply can't see that Jesus was God. He was a human and maybe he was a special kind of guy. Maybe he was a prophet or a teacher or a sage of some sort, but there's no way that he's actually God. Mormons don't believe that Jesus was the God, right? They believe he was a, a lowercase God and we too can become lowercase gods. Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe that Jesus was God. They say, where in the Bible does Jesus ever claim to be God? Well, here's a great example of one. Here Mark is clearly showing us the glory of God is present. I think of Jesus' words right before Abraham was, I am. I like this one. It's one of my personal favorites. I just came across this. In Luke 10, Jesus says, just kind of casually, I saw Satan falling from heaven. Come again? Like what kind of normal human being says that? Yeah, hey guys, I was there before material universe was created and I saw Lucifer become Satan and get tossed down. What kind of person talks like that? If what Jesus says right there is true, then he is infinitely beyond any prophet or any teacher or any wise man that's ever existed. He is way beyond Elijah and Moses. If what he's saying there is false, friends, listen, then he is either evil or he's insane. He's either God, evil, or insane. The one thing you can't say about Jesus, and you hear it all the time today, is that he's just one among many. He's just one teacher, one sage, one prophet, one religious leader. They all lead to the same road, so on and so forth. Sorry, but you just can't say that about Jesus based on what Jesus says about himself. As C.S. Lewis put it, I've used this before, if you're following, there is no middle ground with Jesus. He is either a lunatic, a liar, or he is Lord. And I have Lord capitalized there because that is the name of God, Yahweh. Now, Peter makes a mistake that many people make today. He treats these three guys as equals. Let me make a tabernacle for all three of you to dwell in. But those two guys are gone. And Jesus alone stands there. He was asleep still. Peter is still asleep of recognizing who Jesus really is. Are we still asleep to him today? Do you understand Jesus is the glory of God come in the flesh? Now, the second implication of the transfiguration, if you're following, is that God's entire plan for our rescue centers on Jesus. Do you ever wonder what Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus about? We're told in the other Gospels, they're talking about his departure, which is another word for exodus. See how this story connects? It's so cool. They're talking about his departure. Does that sound familiar, right? When else is the exodus used? when God came and freed the Israelites from slavery, right? Slavery to what though? Slavery to oppression, uh, slavery to being uh, slaves. But what they're talking about with Jesus is his exodus that is going to lead to a saving of slavery from sin and death. It's a greater exodus than what Moses ever could have done. And again, this is saying that Christianity is different what every other religion teaches, including some Christian churches teach. Every religion, I have a little uh, illustration here. You can tell my artwork, once again, is on full display. This is every religion, including Christianity, right? God's up here, we're down here, and there's like a mountain between us. And religion says this, second slide, right? I have to work my way up the mountain, I've got to be good enough to reach nirvana or Allah or whatever, right? The state of being where I can now come closer to God. There are a lot of churches that still teach that, right? You've got to be a good person to get up to the mountain in order to be in God's presence. But this is what Jesus has done, friends. He came down the mountain. God in the flesh, because there is no person on earth who can climb the mountain themselves. And because God loved the world so much, he sent his son. And whoever does good things, whoever does righteous works, whoever, no, whoever receives the free gift of Jesus is saved both now and forever. Moses' exodus only liberated people from social and economic oppression, but what did Jesus liberate us from? from death itself. We know that the wages of sin is death. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's the thing. One day Jesus is gonna return, we're told, and there'll be no more sunglasses. He will come in his full glory. He will take home his church. But before that day, we're told Jesus chose the path of suffering for his people. If you're following on your notes, he takes the path of suffering and death in our place. This is the path we are all destined to take. We are all slaves to sin. The wages of sin is death. Jesus understood that and he endured the cross for you and for me. That is what makes him who he is. There's no one like him. He stands alone. If you're following again, only by dying can he free us from slavery to sin and death. Only by dying could he give us life. And yet here's the thing I love about Jesus. It says in Hebrews that he did that with joy. He endured the path of suffering and death with a sense of joy. Joy for what? Joy that he could now be with you. That he could now be with me on top of the mountain, so to speak. Friends, as I close, there's only two responses you can make to a text like this. The first one is actually given to us from the words of the father, which is really helpful for me when I'm putting together sermons, right? Like when the application is given to you, what does the father say to you, to me? If you're following on your notes, the Father says, listen to him. Okay. What does that mean? As you know, there's a world of difference between hearing and listening, right? I hear my wife speaking to me from the kitchen when I'm watching TV. I'm not necessarily listening, though. And she loves that. I mean, she really loves it. It's really good for our marriage when that happens, right? Listening always requires responding. You could be sitting here right now and you are hearing what I'm saying about Jesus, but have you listened? Have you responded? Listening is different. If you're following, listening to Jesus means submitting completely to his authority, his Lord. It's like saying, enough. He is not just one among many. He stands alone. And if he stands alone, if he is the very glory of God, Present among us, he deserves my life. He deserves my obedience. If this is the God who led me to freedom, a freedom that I could not earn on my own, what else can I do but give myself fully to him? Jesus said it this way in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commands. Here's what I want to say, though. This is where so many Christians mess it up. Do we keep his commands in order to get him to love us? No, he already loves us. I keep his commands. I obey the scriptures because he loves me. And because I believe that he loves me, what he tells me in his word is really the best possible life that I could live. If you love me and I love him, keep my commands. Okay, okay. Because if you love me enough to come down and go to a cross to save me for eternity, I'm going to trust that what you say really is the best life possible. Amen? Now listen, if you haven't submitted your life to him yet, today's the day. Yeah. What else do we need? Jesus came for you for the joy set before him. He came for you to endure the cross. He came down the mountain. Give up all the good stuff you're trying to do. He doesn't need that. What he needs is simply your faith. For it is by grace that you are saved, friends. It's a gift. Today, you can receive that gift. You simply say, Lord, I've been trying to climb the mountain. Lord, I've been going my own way. I've been being my own God. I think this is the path I should have taken. I'm turning from that today and I'm turning towards you. And that's it. Then you begin this journey, of course, this journey of obedience, this journey of growth. But if you haven't done that today, what's keeping you? His joy is waiting for you. Now, the second response that we can make, there's only a second response here, is to worship him. Now, don't get me wrong. Worship, we just learned in our last series, right, fully. Worship is a whole life thing. Like, we can worship God through our whole lives. But right now, I'm talking about expressing worship to him. Like, getting down on my knees in awe like the people of Israel because Jesus is God kind of worship. Unashamed worship like David. People didn't like the way David worshiped. His wife didn't like the way David worshiped. He still worshiped. Every time in Scripture, the glory of God shows up. What have we seen? The people are in awe. I love in Second Chronicles, right? They get down on their faces in worship because God's glory has arrived. They don't give him lip service. They don't go through the motions. They worship because there's nothing else you can do when you're confronted with the greatness and the glory of God. So they sing, they pray, they lift up their hands, they kneel, they clap, they shout, they respond. And they do this corporately because that's the only response they can make when God's glory is present. As the author of Hebrews reminds us, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That's a reference to Exodus 19. Our God is glorious. And so, friends, as Chuck already mentioned, we're doing something a little different now. Take a deep breath. I know your message notes are done and you're ready to check out we've got time we have an opportunity to worship some people don't want to now here's just what I would love to see happen I'd love to see a freedom in this place maybe you need to come down front and just confess something open up something. Maybe you haven't been listening to him the way that you know you should be. We've had somebody put a prayer card up over on the cross. Maybe there's a burden you just need to release to Jesus who is God and who loves you. Maybe you need to kneel. Maybe you just need to sit. Maybe you need to stand. I know sometimes there's just times I can't sing. I just need to listen to the people of God singing me, and it encourages me. Maybe that's where you are today. You just need to sit in the presence of the glory of God. But whatever posture you need to take, don't worry about what other people are thinking. We are in the presence of the Lord. We are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. We are the temples of the Holy Spirit. Think about that. God's glory dwells in us. And we now can give thanks to God for that glory. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information about our church, visit our website or find us on Facebook. Have a great day.